0: Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, on May 2nd and 3rd, FlatMap Oslo will be taking place in oslo Norway. FlatMap Oslo is a conference about functional programming, mainly on the JVM. The Call for Speakers is now open and will be accepting talk submissions until April 3rd. And on May 4th, the day after FlatMap Oslo, the Type Level Summit is taking place. Please visit 2016.flatmap.no for information about the Call for Speakers, Type Level Summit, and to register and make sure to use code GEEKERY when registering for 10% off. After that, LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 22nd through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. Visit lambdaconf.us to keep an eye out for updates. PolyConf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available, and visit eventil.com slash events slash polyconf 16 to submit your talk proposal. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Kurt Schrader. Kurt, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Kurt Schrader. I am CEO currently of a company called Clubhouse. We're building project management tools for software teams. It's a small company. We're just getting started. We build most of our software in Clojure. Before this, I was CTO of a big company called Intent Media, where also we had about 20 people that use Closure in some part of their job. Before that, I, I worked for a bunch of startups and for a while with a company called ThoughtWorks, where I did consulting at big companies that I hope I will never, well, you know, I hope I don't have to work at big companies again in the future.
0: So you're doing Closure at Clubhouse and you've done Closure before. Like to take a little bit of time and just kind of get into how you came into Clojure and if that was your kind of first functional programming language, or you had other exposures, or did you have some exposure to Lisp before? So how did you actually get your evolution into working with Clojure from starting in software? So I guess
1: I had some exposure when I was went to university. I went to the University of Michigan a long time ago now. And you know, did some standard ML, did some common lists back in the day. But, you know, didn't really, uh, this was 2000 ish, 2001, maybe before that, and really kind of went in the Java direction around that time because it was, I think, what a lot of people were doing if you wanted a job. And, you know, kind of came back to it, I'd say six ish years ago now and started to dive in. As my old company grew, we had more and more people and my job, On some level, part of it became exploring you know, new ways to make people more productive. And we had a lot of JavaScript. We had a lot of Java. At the time, someone was exploring Scala. And to me, it kind of looked like a bunch of sort of bad Java, which isn't the only way to write Scala. But I had nightmares of giving it to a team of Java programmers and just getting a bunch of Scala that looked like bad Java. So we started to explore things. We had a data science team. I started to work with a couple of people on there on a project to port a lot of code over to Clojure. I had i done a little bit of work sort of in my spare time with it and, and enjoyed it. And we just saw, you know, big giant hunks of, of Java turn into, you know, a few few lines of closure. And it was sort of a big sort of aha moment for me, especially on the data side. My last company was an ad tech company. We had tons of data, I guess, big data. I don't know if people still say that, but we had to process all this data. And when you looked at a huge amount of data and it became very clear what was going on when you just pushed it through a bunch of functions instead of you know trying to model everything in objects and, and figure all this stuff out, we just could start with terabytes of data and write function. It was very clear what was happening and, and I saw productivity take a big leap over there. And then, you know, it started to push out through the company to other parts. We had a team that was building ad servers. And again, it's things were coming in and you needed a pipeline that took some data at the beginning and, and did things to it along the way. And I just saw more and more domains where taking a real functional approach worked really well. And because we had sort of a legacy dependency on a lot of Java and things like that, it worked well for us to had in the closure direction. And a big part of that to me was, you know, back to the Scala point. If you use closure as your functional programming language, it's different enough from Java that you kind of have to think about your problem in a different way, right? And I saw my team starting to go, all right, well, we can use some of the legacy Java code for this. But because of the way this has sort of changed the way I think about things, we can do this part in closure and, and really get things out the door faster and better. And, you know, I saw big productivity leaps sort of at my last company as, as I started or as Closure sort of started to infiltrate the stack there and move things forward.
0: So you mentioned you kind of got exposure to Closure on the side. What was that? Was that just seeing some talks from different people and seeing it on the internet and deciding to dig in? Or did you actually know some other people? What was that exposure from?
1: I guess I had always sort of like had a side interest in little I'd always like start little projects in like common Lisp or something like that or like reconfigure Emacs or something like that with Lisp and I hadn't I was speaking at a conference seven oh no I d I don't know I'm not sure how long ago it was. But uh, Stu Holloway was there and, and Rich Hickey was there and they actually it was it was the first time I I think they would talked about Datomic uh, sort of in public. It was a small, it was like a 30-person conference. And part of it was was looking at that, and part of it was just, there's sort of a, a group of people in New York who I know, David Nolan's one of them, some other people. There's a small but growing community, I guess, in New York of closure people. And I was just sort of, I don't remember how I sort of tangentially fell into that. I'm just kind of a nerd, I guess, like probably everyone listening to this. And, you know, I just go to a lot of meetups and I'm always looking for ways to sort of make my development work more enjoyable. And it just kind of all came together at the right time where I could use this. I was in the position where I could make the decision to have people and myself use this sort of in production as a job and just dive into it. And it sort of went from there.
0: And so you did maintain some LISP experience, from college then with playing with the common lips and stuff on the side, just tangentially, just for fun?
1: Yeah. and and, You know, like it was one of those things where I'd always like, oh, I've got a weekend, I'm going to write some code. And then I get started on something and then get distracted and never come back to it and have sort of a graveyard of strange projects on my machine. But, you know, it was never something that I spent a lot of time on just because I had real work to do, I guess, for lack of a better term, and couldn't find a lot of applications for it. Not that there weren't applications; it just was would have been such a a leap at my company, at most companies, to say, all right, well, we're going to do this next project in you know in Erlang or Common Lisp or something like that, and figure out all the infrastructure. You know, have everybody learn how to do it. That's why Closure, on some levels, is great because you can have sort of the conversation where you say, oh, well, if something doesn't work here, we'll just use the Java library. And in my experience, and I think in the experience of a lot of people I know, you hardly ever do that. You hardly ever, you know, once you start running Closure, you're never like, oh, let me use a bunch of Java libraries to hook into this, generally speaking. But having the option there, I think makes everyone feel a little better about things and sort of you can slide a Closure into your stack that way.
0: And that was kind of where I was getting at was just it wasn't, you were picking up closure, and you had the exposure to closure the first time and you were getting in and learning a functional language for the first time. You had your experience in college, but you kind of still kept it on the side for a toy language and something to just have fun with.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. And it wasn't, I mean, I just kind of have always jumped around between languages anyway. So like I have Go projects on my laptop and I have Smalltalk projects on my laptop So I guess I just kind of enjoy looking at different languages and seeing, you know, what the upsides and downsides are and writing sort of minimal projects in lots of different things. I think if I had ever gone back and done my PhD, it probably would have been in language design or something like that. So, you know, I've had exposure to a lot of these things and I've done toy projects in a lot of them. And yeah, it was definitely part of that. All of that said, I don't know if it was, I'm not I've never been a person who is super religious about thou must use functional programming or anything like that. But yeah, I've definitely played with a lot of functional programming languages over the years just to do little things with them.
0: And so you pull in closure because you find it might be a way to get people to be more concise, more expressive, as well as being on a JVM platform and being different enough from Java that people are going to force to learn it. What were some of those things that you saw in Clojure that thought you would be able to make that transition and be able to sell it based off that conciseness because it's so different than something else that someone would normally be looking at on the JVM?
1: There were a couple things, right? One thing I go back to is we did some initial work with Cascalog because we had a lot of Hadoop processes back then and it allowed us to do big data processing. So we had all these big MapReduce jobs. And I remember very early on porting one of them to Cascalog and showing it to a data scientist we had at the time. And she was very intelligent, multiple PhDs. And one of the aha moments for me was I showed her closure, and she was like, oh, this is just math. Like, this is just a function. I know how this works. I can't look at a MapReduce job and figure out what is going on, which might be true of a lot of us when you look at like Java MapReduce code. But this is just math. I, mean, I put these values in. this is what comes out and this is what I've done for 30 years, right? And especially for that application, you can really, you know, get rid of all your boilerplate, get rid of all your sort of extra complexity around map and reduce and how do you boil this down in your head to just say, here's what the data coming in looks like, here's what the data going out the other end looks like. And it just works really well, in my experience, for that sort of use case. And, you know, a side effect of that is, you know, it because it's more concise and more understandable, you just very quickly become more productive. We did an experiment and it was apparent right from the beginning, especially in that area, that this was a better way to do things and an easier way to look at the problem set and get more people involved who could understand it, you know, without all the, all the boilerplate and everything else you need to do it sort of in an object-oriented way, which is where we we're coming from.
0: So the reason, and you started touching on it there, and that's why I wanted to probe further, was there may be a number of people who have that Java background or something similar where it's trying to get that cell in. It's like, okay, fine, we can always fall back to the Java library, but how can I actually make a case in point that this actually benefits us something? So it sounded like you had that opportunity, and it wasn't just coming in straight away that says, hey, I think this might help us, maybe not, for everything else. But we've already kind of shown you how this would work with the cascalog stuff. And maybe it's time to pull this in and fold this into some other stuff that we're working on. Aside from just saying, hey, here's another language. It's supposedly supposed to be pretty neat. I've played with it some, and I've found it beneficial. But to make that sell into the organization instead of just being you and you alone, yeah and
1: and i think it's i have a hard time with just go talk to someone if somebody's been a java programmer for 20 years or something like that or 10 years or five years um you know how do you how do you convince them that this new thing which is different right like if you are you know a java programmer or a c programmer or whatever and you look at Closure or any Lisp, right? It's just like, first thing you see is parentheses. And then it's significantly different where you have to, you know, reshape the way you think to some extent. And I think that without a real example, it's just a hard sell, anything, right? And you're probably the same way, same thing the other way, right? If you've written Lisp your whole life and I tell you to write a bunch of Java and I can't show you an example of why this is going to be better for this problem space, you're probably going to go, you know, just ignore me or, you know, whatever. So I think, yeah, what we did was we, the normal sort of course of things, how can we not go too far afield, not say, all right, well, I'm going to need all this new hardware and, you know, change the operational profile of the business. Uh, You know, we had a bunch of servers that had JVMs on them. And we ran Java on them and we ran JRuby on them. And this was not a huge step, I guess, at the end of the day. It was a leap, but it wasn't an unrecoverable leap, right? So yeah, that's what we did. We, uh, myself and, and really uh, another guy, ported some of the stuff to Cascalog, and, and then we looked at it and it was obviously better than what we were working with. And then, yeah, we ended up porting you know, most of that code base over. And from there, it kind of seeped into the rest of the organization.
0: So was it just mainly the two of you that did that and that would deal with this? Or was there some selling across the other people of your team that says, this is different, but you do see that this is obviously better for whatever obvious is that you're willing to essentially learn something new and give up potentially your expertise in Java for becoming a beginner again? Or was it just you had it, you had the business Sell and they said, fine, you two just do it. It's just you two. And then everybody else is like, whoa, they're really onto something. So essentially, everybody came to you instead of you having to start pushing it out first.
1: So I was the CTO of the company, so I could kind of make the call there. But again, it wouldn't have been a call. I wouldn't have said, okay, 15 people at once, you're all going to do this all the time. Right. Like I found the person who was kind of independently interested in it as well and and we worked together to do sort of the initial work and yeah i mean there were selling to different levels right like you know some people saw it right away and said oh yeah this is this is much better and i imagine some people still don't don't think it's better although they may you know might not be working on that team anymore but yeah it's hard when your lines of code go down when your ability to understand what's going on you know is is obviously increased i mean there's a hurdle right where you have to be able to read closure code to some extent and at the time which was uh, this was i don't know 5 years ago or something like that the tooling was in a much worse state than it is now the closure community as a whole was not at the level of sort of uh, size or maturity that it is at this point. So there was definitely selling, right? We had to convince people to give up their IDEs or or go to, you know, IDEs that were, you know, clearly worse than, you know, what they were using day-to-day to to use this other thing, for lack of a better term, that, you know, may or may not, you know, be familiar to them. And, And a lot of it's familiarity, Right. And I think you're going to lose, right, especially five years ago, if we had said, all right, entire team, here is Emacs, here is, you know, weird build tools, here's a whole new language that you've never been exposed to before, go like that, that wouldn't work. So we had to, yeah, incrementally, starting with the two of us, then, you know, picking up two or three other people, then picking up seven people, and then, you know. That whole team sort of moved over to Clojure and which was, you know, seven, eight, nine people, something like that. And then, you know, other people in the organization started to see it and say, you know, what is this? Why would I use this? And they would sit down and, and work through it, and look at it, and you know, it started to bleed out into other parts of the organization just sort of naturally at that point. Because people were, I think, significantly happier using it, you know, once they had gotten in and started working on it.
0: So for all that you go through that whole process you get Closure to be more readily adopted and then you leave and you go start Clubhouse so apparently you found some stuff and value of doing closure just in general what was your weighing of actually starting with closure and building a company that uses closure to begin with was there you were comfortable you felt the community at that point was able to sustain and bring in the jobs, or you found that you've learned enough to be able to transition people and bring them in. You're taking it and you're starting with closure. So what, what was that kind of mindset that said and in this case, closure is the right thing for what we need to do. What kind of sold you on that given all the potential risks that everybody talks about, whether or not they're real or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some of those pieces, uh, we're similar. There's always sort of, if we have a problem, we can use a Java library. We can use something from Java, right? And I'm, I'm comfortable with Java. I'm comfortable with the JVM. There is that piece, you know, a big part of it, you know, to be honest is I was, you know, I started a new company for the first six, nine, 12 months of that company. We knew we were going to be writing code heads down. And I wanted to write closure because I enjoy writing closure and your priorities kind of shift. But, you know, one of the things there is, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, there'll never be as many closure programmers as there are Java programmers, at least not in my lifetime, I guess. But the people that I know who do closure and the people that learn closure or, or functional programming or anything like that, you know, by themselves on the weekends, especially at a startup when you want to move fast, uh, you know, if, we have to, you know, hire the kind of people that I think want to learn this stuff at home on the weekend. And I already, you know, knew that, you know, from my experience uh, at my last company that it's more understandable. We could definitely get more functionality out of the door faster. You know, there was that question of are we going to be able to hire people? Are we going to be able to find people? And I I felt comfortable enough with sort of the size and maturity level sort of the community in New York City and also with you know, the growing sort of worldwide community. We have a developer in Maryland, we have a developer in Dallas, and we're building a tool for helping software teams build software. And you know, if, if we can't build it, the thing that we use every day for ourselves to support a distributed team, then we probably have another problem with the way everything's going in the in the world right now. So, you know, I, I was comfortable enough that I would be able to find enough people who, you know, wanted to do this, who are, who are high caliber sort of people to make it work. And it's been the case so far. And, and I think, uh, you know, I just see uh, closure community and functional programming has really, I think, you know, taken off as a slew of languages you can use in, in, in sort of real companies over the last 10 years and it continues to grow so one of our developers OCaml for for a lot of years and now he writes Clojure here so there's more and more people and they select in to sort of say hey you're using Clojure I want to do that I'm interested in doing that every day instead of sitting here writing JavaScript or sitting here writing java all day long and just spending my weekends on this so i think that's still a pretty good area of, of really smart people that are going to it's going to keep growing and we're going to keep you know
0: building this up so essentially to kind of reiterate the python paradox from paul graham and others have mentioned it throughout the time but it's essentially it might be an error or a narrower pool but you feel at this point that that pool has a different talent set that helps select and narrow down for you because they're self-selecting into this stuff exactly
1: yeah yeah absolutely like it's not i think there are enough closure people or people interested in closure like who at this point are comfortable enough with the you know general let's say java tool set, right? Like you don't have to learn Emacs at this point to write closure. But if you're really interested in learning closure, you can, you know, install cursive on IntelliJ and just start hacking around. And I keep seeing more and more people move in that direction and do weekend projects and realize that they would like to do this all the time. And you know, if I can give them a place to do it all the time and we can do interesting things, then yeah, that's kind of the direction we want to go in. And yeah, I just I wasn't that worried about finding people it seems like healthy enough community and and there's enough people that once they've done it don't want to go back to what they were doing before that yeah uh, i think it's going to work out it seems like a fairly reasonable choice to me at this point
0: you picked closure and then the other thing you picked is datomic and i guess i should ask what other kinds of things are you folding in when you're taking and starting with this stack because Closure and Atomic, at least themselves, are still pretty niche, still pretty fringe in the overall technology that says you're building on this technology. What does your environment look like that you use? Do you do any front end? And is that all JavaScript or is that, are you actually managing to take advantage of Script as well? When you're pulling this stuff together and you're picking these technologies, what did you wind up picking in? Kind of, you mentioned Closure because you enjoyed it. And if you're going to be heads down, you wanted to do it. What were some of those other things, and what, like, why Datomic, and anything else that you might have pulled in from the beginning?
1: Yeah, we have been on Datomic. We've been around for a year and a half, or something like that now, and we've we've been using Datomic since day one. That was a choice that I made, both because, again, it was something I was interested in, and. I talked to some Cognitech people about it, and it seemed like it had a lot of good properties to it. And also, it was on that level, it was an interesting choice, but it was also a practical choice because I want to be able to sort of historically store the data about what's going on in an engineering team and environment and see what sort of interesting things eventually we'll be able to do with that data. and what can we do around, I've got seven teams and they generally work at these speeds and here's what we want to get done over the next year and really kind of hopefully eventually solve some of the problems around, you know, let's come up with a bunch of fake estimates and tell the other side, the business side of a company when we're going to get done. I I think there's some data analysis pieces in there that can make that a lot easier and help us solve things. So a lot of it was just the historical view of the world that Datomic enables and really forces you to deal with. A lot of us have built hacks in relational database where you have some kind of history view of a table, and it's it's just a nightmare, right? So it was both an interesting project coming from a group of people who sort of... I trust to make good decisions about software engineering because they, you know, design Closure and Datomic. And yeah, I mean, part of it too is, like I said earlier, there's a self-selecting group of people that like Closure. I think there's a self-selecting group of people who see Datomic and go, wow, this is amazing. I want to work with this, right? And that's just another advantage when you're a small startup. How can you get people interested and get really good talent in the door to work on things? And, you know, that's part of it too is just you know, back to the same reason as closure. I enjoyed working in it. I enjoyed using Datalog and really playing with this and thinking about the possibilities that it sort of enables and knowing back to the Paul Graham comment, what will we be able to do in short order that, you know, our competitors won't do because it would take too much effort or to some extent can't do just because they just don't have the data and the historical view on things.
0: And so I guess we should take a step back a little bit. And Datomic has been mentioned a couple of times on the podcast. Early on, we talked a little bit more in depth, but we haven't talked about it too terribly much. But just I'll give a high level overview and you can kind of correct and fill me in and see sure. where things are going. But essentially, it's all you're doing is storing tagged tuples, essentially, based off an ID. And those are treated like the transaction log you would have in any other normal database. But that is your database. And then there's some... Things about how you roll that up to create a resultant view of your data and what you do to query your data. You mentioned datalog, so you don't use something like SQL, but you use something use datalog which looks more prologue-esque, where you essentially specify your constraints and say this thing equals this thing equals this thing or not, and essentially do joins but in a very extra relational type of manner instead of just a SQL statement. Is that an accurate, fair summary? And then I guess dig in a little bit deeper to what else it kind of gets you. Yeah, definitely.
1: I think that's a pretty, pretty comprehensive definition of how it works. It also, yeah, you have sort of these tagged tuples that roll up into entities. So user slash name, user slash email, And if a bunch of those attributes go in together at the same time as one transaction with one ID, it ties them all together. So the CURT entity is a bunch of these that have all gone into the database with the same sort of top-level ID, internal database ID. And then the interesting thing is there are no... You never overwrite data. You just sort of append data to what's there. So if I change my email address, I can still... Take a view of the database from yesterday, if I change my email address today, say, I can look at the database yesterday and say, what was my email address before? What was my email address yesterday? What was my address a year ago? What was, and you know, very specific to us, you know, we're building project management software. You can say, what was the state of this project a week ago? How much progress have we made? What was the state of this two weeks ago? The other interesting, I think, characteristic of Datomic is your transactions go through one box, but your queries happen in memory locally on your local box. So we have API servers. They pull in all the data all the current state of the world and and some amount of the historical data and they query locally. So it sort of has a different operational model than, say, a database where your transactions and your queries and everything happen in the same place. It actually separates out the storage as well. So when we're doing development locally, we use Postgres on the back end. Datomic creates a table in Postgres and writes its data into there. In production, we actually run against DynamoDB on AWS writes and reads go through the transactor into Dynamo. And then I think they use Hornet MQ under the covers to distribute any writes transactions out to all of what they call peers, which are, the, in our case, are API servers that store all the data in memory and then do the queries locally.
0: Yeah, when I came from a .NET background and kind of had my eyes watching the .NET movement for anybody who's in that .NET background, which was kind of coming around with domain-driven design and At that point, there was CQRS later, at least when I was watching it, it was that point. But you had CQRS, which is Command Query Responsibility Segregation, meaning you write to something, something changes it into a view that's meant for reading, and then you had event sourcing, which was that. And looking at Datomic when that was announced, it seemed to mirror a lot of those concepts because if you weren't doing that, CQRS and event sourcing a lot of times... I, at least in my experience, and I know of other people who had the same problems was you would have your essentially triggers on a table that would know that this field was written. So I need to go rewrite that whole table and put the timestamp so I could capture the last value for an audit log on all the changes from a table. And then looking at Datomic, it's like, Oh no, it just, it does that because you don't actually update anything in place. You get your full history.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. And, and, you know, yeah, like you said, um, there's that or someone you, you, you have some kind of pointer in another table that says like current version of user that points to, you know, some kind of thing and it copies over to another table for the user history table. Like, you know, there's, there's ways to hack this together. But yeah, I think the CQRS stuff is definitely very related to what Datomic does and Datomic, you know, I think they unabashedly steal good ideas from other places, which I'm a fan of. Give me the best software you can give me. And I think we, if you watch some of Rich Hickey's talks, like, you know, he steals ideas from everywhere, right? And a lot of the stuff Coming into Datomic is extremely well thought out and really, I think, takes some of the best ideas from a lot of different areas of computer science to really try to put them together into something that really works well and makes good trade-offs to give you a really usable and interesting data store. It has elements of graph databases in it. Reference is a first class concern. So if a user is part of a company, say, I just make a reference tuple to that company and you just say, all right, well, that's the company. And you can look it up by name in the actual data log query when you're creating the user or the employee or whatever you want to call it. And it has that reference. It builds the join automatically between them. It's not really quite a graph database. Like I can't annotate that edge. Sometimes, I wish I could, uh, but has pieces of of graph database in there to make life easier. I don't have to look up an ID somewhere to do a join against these things. It's just part of the first class concern of the database. And yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that in there that are pieces of other domains that they've pulled in to make things, you know, easy for you as a developer and, and really to keep sort of the complexity level low while giving you a ton of power to do things with.
0: And it seems a pretty big mind shift set. So if you have people who are coming in, and I don't know how many people you've got brought in that haven't been familiar with Datomic, but if you have had some, what was that transition like? Or even your transition in changing your way of thinking or anybody else you've worked with where it's, I'm used to relational databases, and now I have to think in something that's more Datomic. What have you found that transition to look like?
1: Yes, there's definitely... A big leap there right and to your question i haven't brought in anyone who was familiar with Datomic, atomic and i was not familiar with it before we started other than you know i'd read the documentation but it is significantly different than what most people are used to using on a day-to-day basis right and it's something you know I, at the end of the day I, it's something that i worry about on uh one level because it is you know i when we bring someone in you have to learn closure if you don't already know it um you have to learn generally speaking you know some everybody i've brought in so far has known how to use emacs already so that makes life a little easier we've structured our application to you know have a state monad that threads through it so you know there's some other things in there that are like oh how does this this is different than what i would normally do And then, you know, Datomic on top of that has a new query language and and really works different than, uh, you know, a traditional database. Um, All of that said, you know, if you have, you know, a a reasonable level, I think, of fundamental understanding of, you know, programming and computer science in general, uh, you know, it's 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 easier in so many ways. Like in our experience, onboarding people so far and, and teaching them, training them how to use these tools. You know, for a couple of days, say of, you know, figuring out how DataLog works. It's it's confusing, and then you realize that you're actually it's simpler and less complex than what you're used to on a lot of levels. You know, you're just defining in DataLog, for instance, you know what you want. I want all the users in this organization, organization X. And you just, it's two lines you don't have to worry about. Is this a left join? Is this a right join? Is this, what's all sort of the sequel complexity that I can throw at things here? You kind of stop overthinking it. And I've seen really with people so far, after a couple of weeks, the light bulbs all sort of go on and you realize like, why did I spend so many years doing this in this other way that at the end of the day is ultimately just a lot harder than what we're working with here. So I was a little concerned at first. And part of it is probably the self-selecting character of the people that we've hired so far. But I think ultimately, once you sort of let go of a lot of maybe what you've done in the past and how you thought about things in the past and really embrace the model, there's not a whole lot of, I think, going back at that point. You realize that it's better and simpler, and you've been overcomplicating things in your mind on some level, and once it clicks, it's not a problem. It's a week or two of coming up to speed, but I think that's probably anywhere where you get a new job, and you know maybe more if you have to dig into we have ten thousand lines of closure code or something like that, but you know that would have been a hundred thousand lines of Java. I want to pick on Java. I think Java's fine. It's probably going to take you more than a week or two to come up to speed with 100,000 lines of Java, if you ever do, right? You're, you might never internalize all that. So I think it's all trade-offs, but I, I haven't seen any evidence of this is too much for people to handle. It usually clicks pretty fast, and then you know, we start doing work.
0: What have you found some of the stumbling points to be for those things for it to click? What were some of the big differences of, I'm thinking this way in a relational database, and then I come to the datomic, and then once I get this concept whether or not it's one concept or two or three or a handful, what were those things that it's like, oh, okay, now I get that transition. And then have you found anything as people come in and you have to go through that, that helps make that concept click faster?
1: I think data logs, a big one. When I first started working with Datomic, that was the, I guess hardest part to sort of get going with. Cause I think after so many years of SQL, Everybody knows SQL, right? Like independent of whatever other language you're using, you're probably using SQL in some way or another. And something about SQL, I think kind of hardwires the way you think about data and the way you think about relationships. And at the end of the day, data log and SQL, I think are logically equivalent. You can, I think you can prove that. I don't quite know where the proof is right now, but... It's just different enough that you sort of have to reorient the way you think about things. And I think everyone that I've seen so far, when they figure it out and it clicks and data log starts to make sense, you kind of say, why did I do things the old way, right? Like, I wonder what it would be like for me right now to go back to SQL. I'd probably be fine because, again, it's been hardwired into my brain for 20 years or whatever. But there's just that shift in the way you think about things to get to data log and then you know beyond that until you start to dig in some of the history stuff and really start to use that beyond the data log stuff it's a relational data store right so there's some schema there are some pieces that look a little different than you would have in in a normal database but you can map your database lens onto it pretty easily and just use it as a data store and i think that hasn't been that hard flipping the data store sideways and thinking about how to use historical data and what that means and how do you process things that way and look at all the transactions that have gone into the database. How do you use that? How do you materialize them over time to generate things? And and what can we build using that sort of view of the entire world that goes back in time, I think has been a little harder just because it's not something we've ever really had access to before and there's some obvious use cases like we have an activity feed and you can do that by saving all your activity somewhere and you know if you had a normal database whenever something happened you'd have to save it somewhere we just say give us all the activity for the last 2 days and we look at all the transactions that have gone into the database and see what happens there right so i think the initial coming up to speed is is, is really the data log stuff and then I don't think we fully explored sort of what we can do and the the power that we have because of the history stuff and what can be done there.
0: And have you noticed anything about how you have to structure data that's changed as well? Because with relational, you have essentially these columns and rows. But if you're dealing with tag tuples and things like that, have you noticed anything there that's a blocker? or Do people generally pick that up and get that pretty quickly?
1: Because there's, there's, so Datomic has schema, it's not MongoDB or something like that, where you can just store arbitrary JSON documents, you have to define schema and do things. I mean, one of the things that bites us occasionally is Datomic's a new project, it's not a big team working on it, there's no query profiler, right? So, you write your data log queries where you take the full data set you want to look at at the beginning and you try to reduce it as much as possible with the first statement in the query because the way you make your queries fast is to reduce your data set as quickly as possible. So if I have a million users in a system and I only care about looking at something users in one company out of there, say, I want to reduce that down to those 20 users right away and then do my query against that. So it's not something you don't have to worry about a whole lot in a, you know, a traditional database because you go, okay, well, let's run a query analyzer on this and we'll, we can see sort of where it gets slow. There've been days where we said, oh, well, why is this running really slow? or Or even more than that, like here's a couple of options. Which one do we think is faster? And when we profile them, they're relatively similar. How do we either make this faster or do we have to think about as our data set grows, is it going to slow down more than option two? That sort of thing has been, you know, there's pieces that are sort of, I guess, related somewhat to the maturity of the project that makes things difficult at times. But it's pretty, you know, back to the specific question, the way you model data in Datomic is, is really not that different from a SQL database, because you still have to have your schema, you still have to define, you know, we think of, you know, a user entity as, you know, you can think of that just as a table, right? You just put in what you would normally have as columns, except it's just a tag, but, you know, a lot of ways you can, you can picture the data in the same way in your head that you would with a SQL database.
0: That sounds good. And that's given a lot of good information about Datomic that it's been a while since I've actually looked in and I personally haven't really dug in myself with anything. So I think that gives a good overview and kind of gives a refresher. And it's interesting to see people's perspectives of how they help pick up those languages. So we're kind of bordered on time based off a hard stop that you have, but I want to give you the chance before we start wrapping up. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure gets mentioned? I don't think so. I mean, I think just
1: to revisit quickly, you know, something you you brought up earlier, like Thinking about how to get more people to try out closure trout functional programming. I think, you know, podcasts like this are great. And I think that community continues to grow. But I have a developer working for me who had been a JavaScript developer for a long time and a Java developer and Python developer before that. And we had a meeting a few weeks ago where he sort of said, or he said something along the lines of, I really hope this company works out because I don't know how I could ever go back to doing what I was doing before because this is awesome. And, you know, I think figuring out and working on ways to keep this community growing, I think is just good, good for all of us in general and will make developers happier, which, you know, at the end of the day, I think is, is important and, and it's, you know, help our industry as well.
0: Thank you for the comments about the podcast as well. So now that we're wrapping up then, since you don't have anything else really to plug other than that, is there anything you want to plug in general? Just upcoming appearances, projects involved with aside from Clubhouse, things you want people to know about, and then we'll get into where people can find out more about Clubhouse and stuff in a little bit. But is there anything that you want to make sure people know about in general?
1: I actually don't have any talks coming up. I usually have three or four or five talks a year. I've just been head down on Clubhouse and working on this stuff this year, so I don't have anything right now. If you follow my Twitter, I'm at Kurt on Twitter, so easy to find, and I'm sure it'll be in the the show notes, but I feel like uh, I should boil down kind of what we just talked about here into some kind of talk and go give it a few places. So stay tuned. Something in the future,
0: I imagine. And then you mentioned the comments about just bringing the community better, but do you have any specific call to action you want to ask for the listeners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I have a person who works for me who moved to Dallas recently. And you know, he goes to the Dallas closure meetup. It's three or four people. But I think getting out and meetups, I know the, the New York closure meetup is huge. And, and we try to get a lot of people there regularly. And yeah, I, I think getting out and just meeting other people and growing the community, I think is, is good for everyone. And coming all the way back to the beginning, like there are jobs out there now, there's stuff to do here. So, you know, if anybody listening to this has any interest in in enclosure, like just get started, like spend a few weekends and, you know, let's keep, keep growing this and, and moving things forward.
0: That sounds great. So where can people find you online and find Clubhouse if they want to figure out more about what you're doing and the way Clubhouse is approaching stuff? You mentioned you're at Kurt on Twitter, but what are some of the other places that people can find you and Clubhouse to find out? how you all are doing with your time in Clojure and Datomic and whatever else may be going on.
1: Yeah. So I think Kurt on Twitter is, is where I spend most of my time now. I regularly start saying I should start blogging again, but I haven't been doing it a whole lot. You can find me, I think I'm K Schrader on GitHub, but not a whole lot of activity there lately either. And then yeah, Clubhouse, we're trying to build project management software for software teams that's very enjoyable to use and, you know, can start at a two or three person team and grow eventually to, you know, hundreds or even thousands of users. So you don't have to use Jira if that's not your favorite thing, because it's not my favorite thing. And try to cover all those bases and really be enjoyable, be simple and help people build software as they're building it. And that's at clubhouse.io.
0: And I'll make sure to get all those added to the show notes for people to find out more. Awesome. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And thank you once again, Kurt, for taking your time to join me. I know we kind of had some schedules based off young ones, you, yourself, and then with the new one here on my end that we just had to try and figure out what time would work for both of us. But thanks again. Great talking to you and look forward to seeing what you're doing with Clubhouse and Closure in general in the coming future. Awesome. Thank you so much. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.